It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, November 12th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. If Israel is successful in eliminating Hamas, what's the future look like for Gaza or the Middle East peace process? How we get from here to there is an extraordinarily difficult and vexing path. I'm Kevin Cork. In politics, the old saying goes, as goes Ohio, so goes the nation. Which is why Tuesday's victory of a pro-abortion ballot initiative in the Buckeye State is bigger than you'd think. The country is nominally pro-choice. But it's also a little uncomfortable with abortion in general. They don't like the idea of third-term abortions. They don't like the idea of abortion on demand, if you will. But how are they going to navigate that issue is going to be one of four questions of the coming election season. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Israeli forces are inside Gaza City, continuing to target Hamas terrorists responsible for the worst terror attack in the country's history. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told Fox News Channel's special report anchor Brett Baer this week. We're going to continue until we eradicate Hamas. Nothing will stop that. We're absolutely committed to victory, which is not only our victory, but it's the victory of the entire civilized world against barbarism. Netanyahu has indicated an Israeli military and security presence may need to remain in Gaza indefinitely. That would be the first time Israeli forces occupied the Gaza Strip since a withdrawal as part of a peace plan in 2005. But it is something the Biden administration is warning against, arguing an Israeli reoccupation would be a mistake. But noting a new dynamic has to exist since Hamas has ruled Gaza since 2007. One thing there's absolutely no daylight on is Hamas can't be part of that equation. Can't go back to October 6th. And White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says diplomats are working to figure out what a post-Hamas Gaza will look like. It's not an easy solution, even for seasoned diplomats like Frank Lowenstein. Lowenstein was the State Department's special envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations during the Obama administration, overseeing the Middle East peace process. I spoke with him this week about how the U.S. position can be balanced with real security concerns of Israel. Well, that's really the the, the question of the day. And I think it's interesting that Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, just came out and said it has got to be the Palestinian Authority that is governing over both the West Bank uh, and Gaza Strip. And and that is, of course, uh, on the face of it, the right answer. But how we get from here to there is an extraordinarily difficult and vexing path. Honestly, right now, the Palestinian Authority is barely hanging on. Uh, in the West Bank. I think uh, yeah. uh, uh, President Abbas probably projects power uh, into a relatively small area of Ramallah and b- barely at all into the whole West. Of the West. So, and, and there's a lot of anger among the Palestinians that have been directed towards him and, and, the, and the Palestinian Authority. There's a lot of, of issues with corruption and, and so, some sort of you know, really anti-humanitarian yeah. uh, uh, sort of steps they've taken to keep control. There, so you got a, a, an enormous amount of blowback against the, the PA already. So in order to get them to go into Gaza, the first thing you have to do is, is make that a sustainable enterprise in the West Bank, right? And that's been made all the more difficult by really the, the most extreme government in the history of Israel, which has 
taken more steps to make it clear to the Palestinians in the West Bank that there is no path to two states for them. So in the first instance, you're going to have to fix the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank before there's any chance that they can play a meaningful role in Gaza Strip. So I think yeah. that's it's one thing to say that's the right answer. It's a very different question to answer of how you get from here to there. Well, and for Gazans, what is their level of trust of of Abbas and and the PA? I mean, the PA was basically ousted by Hamas in, in 2006, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And and it was uh, the, the trust level is basically non-existent right now. Um, although polls will show it, it was interesting. They did polls in the West Bank and in Gaza Strip and in Gaza, the most of the people said, we prefer the PA and in and in the West Bank you had some troubling indications that they 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 were more open to other alternatives. The the point being that nobody likes their government, right? And <laughs> and so the you know you're gonna have people saying, hey, we we like these yeah. guys because they're not the current, they're not in charge of the current mess. But in, I think you've raised a really important question, which is how are you going to give the PA credibility in Gaza Strip going forward, given that that they haven't been there in any meaningful way in in, in almost 20 years. And, and there's no there's no popular mandate that they have even in the West Bank. So remember, there hasn't been an election since 2006, right? right? So so Abbas is in year 18 of a of a, of a four year term, and so I think that's really done a lot to diminish the credibility of the Palestinian Authority. And I will say this: the one opportunity that may arise from 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 the, from the rubble of this catastrophe is that you could open some possibilities for elections among the Palestinians. That you hadn't had previously. You know, it's just mm. always very difficult to have an election that would give the Palestinian Authority that sort of popular mandate. When, when, when Hamas, we ran the risk of Hamas winning that election, which is why we got into this mess in the first place. So now you take Hamas out, you know, assuming you can do that, just disqualify Hamas as a as a political party. Could you then have an election where everybody committed to nonviolence or something along those lines? And then you had you had uh, the opportunity to have people in Gaza vote in the West Bank vote in East Jerusalem vote, and then you could have this unified body politic of Palestinians with an elected parliament and, and presumably at least an elected president. That to me is going to be absolutely necessary for the PA to survive in the West Bank, let alone play any meaningful role in Gaza. But the point is particularly important with respect to Gaza because the PA has no history there; they have no credibility there. And I think you're going to have to give the people of Gaza an opportunity to say, yes, we consent to the rule of the of the Palestinian Authority here. Again, a lot easier said than done. And would Israel have to consent to the outcome of those elections and to whatever authority w was sort of being the caretaker here? Um, obviously, they're going to have incredible security concerns after what happened on October 7th. I don't know if that means building some sort of secured sort of buffer zone or, or whatever, but it's possible that that security presence is going to look much different for IDF forces. Yeah, I, I think that that will go a long way towards determining what, what the actual post-Gaza governance options are, how this conflict plays out right now. And my, my sense uh, uh, is that complete victory over Hamas, where they're just destroyed entirely as a military force, it's going to be extremely difficult uh, for them to achieve, right? There's estimates are wildly variant, which suggests that there's very weak intelligence, but 20 to 40,000 uh, Hamas soldiers is what they're estimating. And the idea that you could go kill all of those guys or eliminate them from the battlefield in one form or another, I, I don't think that's an achievable goal 
in in any kind of a reasonable time frame. In other words, that's not going to happen in a month or two months. Or so. Then the question is, what is the residual uh, impact of Hamas going forward? And and is this main military operation by the Israelis effectively just going to transition into a, a lower intensity conflict that's going to extend for a long period of time? And I think that's the most likely outcome. So we're talking now about long-term governance, long-term security responsibility. I think what you're looking at here is, is an extended period of time where the Israeli military will basically be in control of everything that goes on in the Gaza Strip, right? And that 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 I could see lasting for six months or more. Again, just a, a, a heavy footprint military operation, less intensity, fewer civilian casualties, but doing basically targeted special forces raids to try to eliminate the remnants of Hamas. But understand, that is going to be a long process with a very uncertain outcome. So the idea that you could get in any kind of an international force, I think what everybody would like to do is transition from the Israeli military presence to an international force that could keep the peace there, right? And begin to allow reconstruction to occur. How are you going to get anybody to come in and put troops on the ground there? Talk to the Arab leaders right now, and their their answer is basically like, absolutely not. Yeah. We're not going to go in and own this mess. We're not going to be responsible for fixing you know, what the Israelis and Hamas have broken. So you're just looking at a long period of time here, I'm afraid, where, where the Israeli military will have what Netanyahu is talking about now, which is ultimate security responsibility. The question then becomes, is that the, 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 the state of affairs for years now? Or can you get to a point where it's calm enough and the threat from Hamas is limited enough that Israel can begin to pull back and you would ideally get a, 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 an international force in there to take the place? But the Palestinian Authority has absolutely no ability to, to conduct security operations in Gaza Strip yeah. for as far as the eye can see. The idea that the passive, which barely exists in the West Bank now, could play any kind of meaningful, or, or that they would even want to, right? That they would have the will among the passive to go shoot at other Palestinians, even if they're members of Hamas right now. So you have the will and the capability. None of that stuff is present right now. And that's just on the security side. Well, that's what I was, you answered the question I was going to ask, which is, is there a scenario in which maybe Egypt or Jordan or Egypt and Jordan sort of provide the security and the Palestinians then are, you know, responsible for the governance. But it sounds like that's something that that those two countries are not on board with. Yeah, that's exactly the right question. I think that's what everybody would love to see happen. They won't do that right now. They, they won't even talk about it right now. I would be very surprised if the Egyptians were ever going to willing to put any ground troops on the uh, on the on the ground in Gaza. Mainly because they don't want to own this problem. The, the situation in Gaza is going to be horrific uh, uh, beyond anything we've experienced in the past for an extended period of time, even after the main military operation. And going to have you know the, just food, water, medical care, all that stuff is going to be extremely difficult to, to bring to the level that that, that that meets the minimum humanitarian needs. So the idea that Egypt is going to go in there and somehow or other be responsible for that mess, they won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And they've been very clear about that. Now, again, things could change. And I think one of the main goals of the administration right now and all the diplomacy they're doing is to try to get some of those Arab countries that were that we have good relations with, good relations, to begin to, to, to contemplate taking on a more uh, a meaningful role on the ground. But right now, the, the prospects for Egyptians or Jordanians, I think you might be able to get some Jordanians into the West Bank to, to help uh, uh, strengthen the Palestinian Authority. They, they already trained the, the Palestinian mm -hmm. Authority security forces in the past. Maybe you could get them to play a little bit more of a role doing that on the ground in the West Bank. Right now, they'll refuse, but that, that seems to me in the realm of the possible. Getting them into the into Gaza Strip, I don't see that as a likely scenario. And the Egyptians, you know, as, as we say in New York, forget about it. Would the UN, <laughs> is it would, could it be a role for the UN? 
Well, so yeah, the UN the problem with the UN is that uh, if you're talking about UN peacekeepers, obviously yeah. you have to move that through the Security Council. Incredibly challenging given the the, the dynamics we have with the Russians yeah. and other. But also, who's going to be those peacekeepers? Who who's going to volunteer? Again, no one's sending peacekeepers almost by definition into a war zone. So at what point does Gaza Strip even become the kind of place where security wise uh, uh, it's safe for for governments to put other troops in on the ground? And that's where I see this sort of extended period where the Israeli military remains. And hopefully they can create the conditions, you know, where, where that might be possible to get an international or an Arab force in there. But again, that'll take a lot of diplomacy between now and then to even make that a viable option. As we talk about the Palestinian Authority, one of the conditions that I have heard from uh, the f- from Abbas and others is that they don't want to move forward in this process without a two-state solution. In other words, why would they take responsibility for the West Bank, take responsibility for Gaza, the the Palestinian population, and still be stateless? Right? I mean, so. Is, does this move that conversation forward or do the events over the last month and five weeks just absolutely freeze out any hope of a two state solution? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, and one of the one of the things that we've always talked about, those of us who have worked in this issue, is that, that, that maybe the situation had to get worse before it had any chance of getting better. That was when I first went to the White House to explain Kerry's plan to, to try to get the negotiations back up and running. That's basically what they said is. You know, hey, we, we're very skeptical this is going to work, but we want to, you know, give Carrie an opportunity. But how do you answer the question of does this need to get worse before it gets better? My answer was that I personally think that may very well be true, but it's not a policy, right? And and do we want, you know, the Palestinians willing to suffer that much? The Israelis are weak. It's going to get really ugly before getting worse means a, a lot of very bad impacts on the on on Palestinians and probably on Israelis as well. So the question now that it has gotten worse, whether we wanted to or not, and we certainly didn't. Right. Can you take this as an opportunity then to rebuild the Palestinian Authority in a way that might make it effective in the in the West Bank and then ultimately in Gaza? And as you just said, in order to do that, and by the way, in order to get any reconstruction funds into into Gaza Strip from the especially from the Arab world, you're going to have to provide a path to two states. Right. And and that is the most vexing challenge for this administration right now, because it is very difficult to credibly say, here's a path from where we are now. To, to, to a two-state solution, right? And, and so you have to do that in order to get everybody in, but how you can do that in a credible way when you have an Israeli government that's basically going to be saying, we will do nothing to help the Palestinians to reward them. So again, it depends a lot on the composition of the Israeli government. Maybe you'll have, you know, Gantz or, or some centrist coalition that steps in and says, hey, look, we got to take a step back here. It's not in Israel's interest to continue the, the occupation in the current form. We need to empower the PA in a way that we haven't done before. And we need to basically give the Palestinians the opportunity to, to breathe a little bit more, to grow a, a little bit more in terms of the, the, the responsibilities they have in the West Bank in terms of voting for their own leadership. All these kind of things are necessary in order to give the PA a basis to, to move forward. Will you have leadership in Israel that sees the problem that way? Or will you have Smotrich and Ben Gavir and the extreme right wing uh, continuing to run the cabinet? And their objective here is to drive the PA out of business Right. They see this as an opportunity to kill the PA once and for all so that nobody will pressure them on making any concessions. They can continue to do more or less whatever they want in the West Bank. So, again, much will depend on what kind of attitude the Israeli leadership. And I would just say very quickly on that, given the mentality of the Israeli people right now, and I think we can all sort of understand how how traumatic this was, how angry they are and how defensive they are, how protective they're going to be of their own security prerogatives, how you square that 
with giving the Palestinians more space to grow and through the Palestinian Authority and create a, a horizon for two states. That's the fundamental challenge the administration is facing. Well, I mean, I've spoken to Israelis in the last couple of weeks who have even described like the the arrangements that have been set up with Palestinians sort of working in Israel. Like they don't even know if that's going to be able to happen again. The, the level of of mistrust and and really, I think, trauma that, that all of these Israelis have gone through. At the same time, the Israelis have said that all of those domestic um, protests that we'd seen over the Jewish reform, over this new government, those have all disappeared. Everybody's united. But part of that was this new war cabinet government that brought in the opposition. Is that sustainable? Do you see Netanyahu shifting the government into that more centrist sort of wartime footing long term? Or or is that really just for the here and now? I think it's probably just for the here and now okay. uh, uh, until they have another election. Right. I, I think what will happen at the end of this is the Israelis will go back to the polls and there will be a referendum on Netanyahu and his leadership. And I really think a, a broader referendum on how you want to manage how Israel wants to manage the Palestinian you know, challenge going forward and whether they're going to have you know, the attitude of, hey, empowering them with, within limits and, with, and, and respecting our security guns is in our interest as opposed to the current attitude, which is what, what's undermined. And by the way, that will require Israel to do some things that it has not been willing to do, uh, like restrict settlement growth, uh, stop legalizing outposts. Uh, um, uh, there's been a lot of demolitions of Palestinian structures, especially now. All that stuff needs up. And by the way, the Israelis agreed to that twice at, at Sharm el-Sheikh and at Aqaba mm -hmm. in, in, in February and March. It, it, because they viewed it as necessary to maintain stability in the West Bank. So the question is, could you tack back to that and say, hey, here's the Israeli piece of it. You guys have got to limit you know, the stuff you're doing that's deeply unhelpful to the Palestinian Authority. And on one hand and on the other hand, we need a major international effort uh, to strengthen the PA to, to get them to the point where they're, they're credible in the West Bank and then could ultimately play that kind of a role in Gaza Strip. So yeah, we'll see. But again, the overall overarching challenge is that the two-state problem, can you be it's, it's very easy to say we believe in a two-state solution. The Palestinian Authority should take control there. The delta between where we are now and, and, and realizing that kind of vision is just enormous. Does this do anything to, I, I guess, before October 7th, there seemed to be a lot of movement towards the Saudis and Israelis reaching this major diplomatic breakthrough. Uh, understandably, I think those conversations are on hold right now, although the White House last week told me that they still believe that that process can move forward. Um, could the Saudis move that? I mean, they have financing, certainly, that could help rebuild Gaza. Um, how does that process play out now in a in a post Hamas world? Yeah, I think the Saudis, if you could somehow or other revive that process now, the, the, the ability to get the Israelis to make meaningful steps towards two states in the West Bank to start maybe transitioning some of that area C land to, to area B, which was contemplated by Oslo. The opportunity for big steps is much, much bigger if you have the Saudis uh, as providing a great incentive for the Israelis to do. And the Saudis, I think now, even if they weren't before, but now I think they'll insist on some pretty significant steps. Uh, towards two states as as a as a as a uh, you know necessity in terms of moving those negotiations. What I'm concerned about now is we're going to run out. Biden's going to run out of time on that, right? Because no, no one's going to be eager to jump into to normalization negotiations with Israel at the end of this war in Gaza, right? Because there's, there's the massive humanitarian problems. Yeah. And again, I don't see the war ending at some fixed point in time. It's going to continue on with a lower intensity, in my in my opinion, anyway. For except, so, how, how long does that last? At what point does does Saudi Arabia say, okay, we want to get back? Nobody wants to see Iran win 
right? And which arguably, if they were, were, I don't think they were directly orchestrating the Hamas attack, but in any event, like Hamas may have had in mind, we want to derail, uh, you know, the, the Saudi-Israel normalization talk. So if, if you don't want to see them win, but at the same time, at what point is the Saudis really going to be willing to engage on that? Again, in a meaningful way. And then you have our, our Congress, right? So if you're talking about a, a, a defense treaty with Saudi Arabia, right, you're talking about moving a treaty through Congress. The idea that Trump is going to allow some major foreign policy achievement that would arguably trump his most important foreign policy, which was the Abraham Accords, mm-hmm. the idea that he would allow Republicans in Congress to uh, uh, to move that forward in a way that would be directly beneficial to Biden and directly kind of at, at that moment in time, you know, three months ago. It's just hard for me to see, having worked in the Senate for Texas, it's very hard for me to see how the politics of that are going to work. But listen, I think it's it, it, it remains the key to unlocking a lot of these other challenges, particularly with respect to creating a horizon for two states and dealing with the immediate reconstruction needs in, in God. So I can see why the administration is keeping that hope. I don't think the Saudis have said no right now. I'm just concerned that as a practical matter, it's going to be very difficult to pull that off in the time frame uh, left in Biden's first term anyway. I'll finish with this, and it is about the president and sort of how you have assessed his handling of this, obviously putting forward a very strong uh, statement, uh, several, I mean, every day, strong statements about our relationship with Israel, Israel having a right to defend itself at the same time, expressing concerns about the humanitarian crisis, about the civilian casualties, Um you know, this week, uh, getting uh, Netanyahu to agree to these temporary pauses sort of on a daily basis, but even suggesting he wished it, it would have been longer and, and gone further. Um, there is a lot of domestic politics at play here for the president, isn't there? A hundred percent. Yeah. And and it's a different kind of domestic political environment than I think the president is used to. Uh, you know, he grew up in Congress almost literally <laughs> he was 30 years old. Yeah. Right. And, and, and those yeah. of us who've worked in Congress for a long time, there's a there's a certain visceral instinct to to support Israel. I also think that comes from the president's heart. I I, I know he wanted to go to Israel personally, despite mm-hmm. the fact that there were obvious risks involved in that. So, you know, g- given that this is where the president is and he sets the tone for the administration, I think they've done a really good job now of balancing out, uh, 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 you know, support for Israel with 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 increasing concerns about the humanitarian issue. But you've touched on exactly the the, the point here for Biden, which is that the politics of this now are really starting to hurt him. Right. So he's gotten whatever benefits he was going to get from standing strongly behind our ally. And there's obviously a strong pro-Israel constituency in the United States. But there's also a lot of people on the progressive end of the spectrum, certainly on the left, who who view the Palestinian issue through the prism of social justice. And they believe that Biden is overseeing then, you know, the, the deaths of thousands of innocent Palestinian civilians. And, and so the, you're seeing in the polls right now, I think that that New York Times poll that came out the weekend showing Biden behind and all those things. I think that there's a discernible impact there of, of this guy's effort in the sense that young people, people of color have said, I'm not voting for this guy. And they had issues with him to begin with, just based on his age. But now they're like, you're on the wrong side of history as, and, and the wrong side of the social justice equation as we see it. So I think what you're seeing in Biden is just a genuine concern for, for, this, for, for civilian casualties. I think you're seeing a genuine concern that Israel's operation is not going to be sustainable uh, uh, if they continue, if this many civilians continue to be in the crossfire. But I also think you're seeing a, a, a reaction to, to the situation on the ground that is informed by our domestic politics and the reaction around the world. I think people in the United States, easy for us to get probably 70% of the world, including the Russians, right, and the Chinese, they're on the side of, of Hamas in this in a general sense, and they're rallying the global South and others, you know, for public relations purposes, they're using this to their benefit. So I think internationally and domestically, you're seeing Biden have to walk that back 
the un, uh, you know unequivocal support for Israel is now tempered by the hey, but you got to do much more on the humanitarian side. And that is, he's going to have to continue to fight that because we own this war in Gaza in a way that we've never owned a Gaza war before. And so he's going to have to manage the political fallout from that. And I think say, whatever you're seeing in the papers in terms of what we're telling the Israelis, that's the tip of that. We're telling them, you know, stronger stuff behind the scenes, which is this is not in your interest, guys. And we're not going to be able to sustain uh, uh, this level of support for you unless the humanitarian situation fundamentally changes. So you're seeing us make the argument, you know, this is in your interest, whether you care about what's going on for the Palestinians or not, this is not in your interest militarily and strategically, and it's not in our interest domestically or internationally. So we're going to continue, I think, to push on that. How successful will be, we'll see, because honestly, having done, you know, engaged with the Israelis in these kind of contexts, they're going to do what they think is right for their country. They're going to do what their politics are telling them to do. They're going to do what, what they think militarily needs to be done. How much impact we have on that calculus, we'll see. Well, my goodness, there are no easy answers in, in this part of the world. And I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about this and, and a lot of diplomats spend a lot of time thinking about this. But to your earlier point, this is not something that's going to resolve itself anytime soon. And, and we could be talking about these uh, these questions for an awfully long time. So I hope you'll uh, continue to, to engage with us and have these conversations as we move forward. I really appreciate your time. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's not just about being pro-choice or pro-life. Abortion ballot initiatives popping up across the country are meant to ignite a passion at the polls. The most recent example in Ohio is voters approving a constitutional amendment preserving abortion rights in the state's constitution, signaling a major victory for pro-abortion advocates. However, the amendment was opposed by many Republicans in the state who argued the measure went even further than Roe v. Wade. As the November 2024 presidential election draws nearer, both Democrats and Republicans are hoping the topic of abortion will energize voters and bring them out to cast their votes for very different reasons. Without question, um, the Dobbs decision has proven to be a wedge issue for Democrats, pulling some independents into their camp, but most importantly, driving Democrats to the polls. Arnon Mishkin is the director of the Fox News Decision Desk. And that's what we saw on Tuesday. And and I suspect that's what we're going to continue to see for the next few elections, um, as long as this issue remains undecided, if you will. You really nailed something that I think a lot of people, frankly, are overlooking. There are a number of people you can call them independents, you can call them politically agnostic, but I think there's a growing number of people who do consider themselves Republicans for which this is an issue they would side with, at least again from a political perspective, with the Democrats. Is that what you're learning in your research in this area? 
Absolutely. For the 50 years that Roe versus Wade was the deciding Supreme Court decision, if you will, a lot of folks who supported abortion rights were not voting on that issue. And the only people who were voting on the issue of abortion were the pro-life contingent that believed we need to change the Roe versus Wade decision. And once that decision was overturned with Dobbs, all of a sudden people who were pro-choice um, started saying, uh, I can't vote Republican. I need to vote for the Democrat for this issue um, without question. The joke in political circles was the dog caught the car. And now all of a sudden the pro-choice crowd was voting on the abortion issue. Brilliant analysis. Uh, you know, in Virginia, you probably read this too. Democrats were able to maintain control of the state Senate and flip the state house. And I mention that because Virginia, at least right now, is the only southern state, and I'm using air quotes when I say southern state, to not restrict abortion access, even though the governor there had supported a 15-week ban. Do you think that was the issue that sort of tipped the scales in Virginia, or am I reading too much into that? And it's like, look, Kevin, Virginia is increasingly blue. Northern Virginia has been blue for some time. Is it that way or the other? What do you think? I think it's, you know, Virginia was is increasingly blue for sure, but it's not bright blue. And the, the folks who are blue in particularly in Northern Virginia are very much, um, you know, sort of moderate democratic types. Um, they were the kind of people who think that uh, uh, Glenn Youngkin is their kind of Republican. That's why he was elected governor. And so I think that without question, the issue that that got the Republicans to lose the House and, and enabled the Democrats to hold the Senate was the abortion issue. Um, you know, we don't have direct data for that, but I think everything we see is about that. And that is, um, uh, and, and I think that that's, that is an important challenge that Republicans face, which is how do you navigate the abortion issue? You know that basically the country is nominally pro-choice, but it's also a little uncomfortable with abortion in general. They don't like the idea of third-term abortions. They don't like the idea of abortion on demand, if you will. But how are they going to navigate that issue is going to be one of the core questions of the coming election season. One of the things about Ohio, at least politically, is people say, as goes Ohio, so goes the country. It's that one unique state where you have major cities in the north, major city in the middle, major city in the south, small cities you know, all across the great state. And then you have incredibly populated rural areas, and you have an ag sector, and you have a science sector. It's really dynamic, and so people tend to give Ohio, I think, outsized weight when it comes to issues like this. Should I draw from what happened in Ohio and extrapolate that this is something we're going to see broadly around the country, or is that a bridge too far? I, I think you are correct. To focus on Ohio as a microcosm of the country, um, as a state that has both rural areas, which are, you know, is the the areas of the country which are, you know, sort of where Trump dominates, and urban areas of the country, which is area an area of the country where Democrats have done a lot better. And so this is a challenge for the GOP coming in 2024. On the other hand, the one thing that I would limit one's extrapolations from it is um, there are a whole lot of of Republican types, as you point out, who voted for the amendment um, to, for the, to the Constitution, which preserved abortion rights, but who are still Republicans or who are still sort of Republican siders. And so it's not clear that the fact that they voted on this issue this way means they will vote for the Democratic presidential nominee, um, particularly given that the presidential nominee will be Joe Biden. And it's a real challenge for the party. Whenever I think about an issue like 
reproductive rights, abortion rights, being pro-choice, being pro-life. I'm always wondering if the Republicans aren't looking at this through maybe a clouded lens. In particular, as we look back at Ohio, there's an element in the law that's just passed that would appear to protect gender-affirming care. And as much as people talk about Broadly speaking, most Americans have sort of a live and let live when it comes to abortion rights. That's on you. That's between you and your doctor or you and your God. And most Americans, I think, broadly uh, view it that way, although obviously many, many do not. When it comes to gender affirming care, I think the margins get a lot. (laughs) I think they're a lot different. I'm just curious why you don't think Republicans maybe try to attack it that way. I mean, you're a guy who knows polls. You're a guy who sees this sort of what happens afterwards and what people say. Walk me through that. Why don't you think they approached it that way? And do you think that would have made a difference? I think it might have made a difference. On the other hand, um, you know, in in Kentucky, um, they attempted to focus on gender affirmative care. A lot, most Americans, I think, are very, you know, sort of squeamish. about what gender affirmative care, affirming care means. And so when the polling suggests that, you know, it sort of is one of those things where people sort of intuitively side with the more conservative view of how you, of how you should handle it. Do we really want to give uh, teenagers puberty blockers? Um, Do we really want to get, you know, affirm the ability for uh, surgical uh, procedures or whatever? Um, so it it is one of those sort of squishy issues. Uh, on the other hand, what we saw on Tuesday was many states that Republicans tried to use that issue and they weren't that effective about it. Because in part, I think, because I, I bet you that the, the percentage of Americans who know someone or who have had or have had to consider abortion or have had have had some sort of abortion is very high. Um, almost every you know family has has someone in their extended family who's dealt with that. Gender affirming care is a very sort of different thing, which is sort of so far as a small um, minority of of Americans who've either seen it in their families or or seen it um, in their uh, with their friends. It hasn't been quite as um, sort of dynamic an issue on on either side. Um, and I think that, you know, that the, there is an element to it that's like, you know, when I hear about sort of men should only f- face men on the on the playing field and women should only biological women only by, and on the playing field. You know, I, it is a big issue. And I think most people would agree that a um, genetic male should not be allowed to get an NCAA trophy. But that's very different from the high school games and and the rest and where they don't see it that much and they don't they sort of think like, well, you know, come on, guys. Uh, I want to talk about the abortion ballot initiative. Uh, This is what I really want to focus on. This is something that not just happened in Ohio, but will continue to happen. Is that broadly speaking, is that something that you think is going to make this the issue for Democrats, the driving issue across the country as we head into 2024? I think it will remain an issue. I think I've spoken to a lot of reporter types and Democrat types who wondered what's wrong with the Ohio Democratic Party that they didn't put that initiative on the ballot in 2024, that they put it on 2023. Um, There is a, uh, it seems that Arizona is going to have an abortion issue, which will probably bring out Democrats to the polls in, in 2024. 
Um, and uh, yes, you could, you could, you did this, the Democrats are going to try to make this a big issue. Um, I think it is a big opportunity for them. Um, and, uh, you know, let's not forget in going back to ancient history, I know 20 years in the 2004 reelection bid by um, uh, George W. Bush, there was an, an, uh, an initiative on the ballot to outlaw gay marriage. Um, and, and that issue brought a lot of Republicans and a lot of conservatives to the polls. And while they were at the polls to vote on the issue of gay marriage, they voted for George W. Bush. And if you look at the numbers, you could argue that George W. Bush won the presidency because of that initiative on the ballot in 2004 when he won re-election. And so you can see some Democrats trying to take that page and put try to put abortion on the on the ballot in many states to sort of drive up turnout uh, on their side. You know, it certainly worked. And I think if, if memory serves back then, it was uh, uh, the gay marriage issue in 0411. And uh, and so I'm imagining that, uh, again, sort of flipping it, I think the idea behind this is, yes, there's a there's a real zeal to get the energy and people are worried about this issue. I mean, you and I have talked about this previously. Uh, this is something that didn't just drive people to the polls in 2016 and 2018 and 2020 and 2022. It will continue to drive them to the poll, in particular, post-Dobbs. Um, when you talk about some of these other issues, like ballot initiatives, do you think this will always, maybe not always, it's too strong of a word, do you think this will continue to sort of be the one thing, or is this part and parcel of a larger, broader effort to energize? Oh, I think it's part of an, an effort that the Democrats have launched fairly effectively in the past four years to sort of drive their voters to the polls, who, you know, historically were a sort of iffy voter group um, to sort of make sure their energy is up, uh, make sure they're getting to the polls and to try to skew some of the independents who sort of were attracted to Republican tax policies, attracted to Republican economic policies to sort of pull them to the Democratic side. Excellent point. I wanted to ask you about presidential politics as it relates again to uh, reproductive rights. I do believe the Democrats will try to utilize this issue. How does it line up, though, if, say, a Nikki Haley uh, were to somehow end up at the forefront of a ticket? Does that change things? If a Kamala Harris uh, becomes a more prominent or not saying this will happen, but somehow became the standard bearer, would that change things at all? Or is that just a pipe dream? Well, I listened on uh, Wednesday night to the third debate. I thought Nikki Haley handled the abortion question very um, subtly and very effectively, I suspect. I have, we haven't seen data on this, but she basically said, you know, she's pro-life. Um, she knows that states have now approved um, abortion rights, and she's fine with that because her all her position has been um, let the states decide. Um, and so I think that uh, Nikki Haley, as the standard bearer of the Republican Party, could avoid some of the negatives associated with a hard and fast pro-life stance that might hurt Republicans. On the other hand, um, which is one of the challenges the Republicans have in, their, in, in choosing their nominee, I'm not sure that Nikki Haley, in part because of that sort of beige, if you will, um, abortion position, um, will, will drive the kind of turnout on the, on the right 
that a Republican will need to achieve um, victory in November. You know, I know it's early and I know that we'll have lots of chances to talk about this as we get closer, obviously, to November of 2024. How are you seeing things shape up right now? Everyone's saying that this is a foregone conclusion. Kevin, I don't know what you're talking about. It's going to be Trump v. Biden. Do you agree with that? Or are you like some of the folks here in Washington who feel like, eh, not so fast. We don't know that because a lot can happen, say, between now and the conventions. I'm with the group that believes the nomination is still somewhat up for grabs. But one of the things I looked, I saw on Tuesday night was that you had the Democrats who were um, driving themselves to the polls um, because of abortion, because of um, in large part because of abortion, because of, you know, Trump in general. I saw Republicans who didn't have the kind of turnout that they have had in presidential years. And I think that one of the impacts of the of the Dobbs decision on the Supreme Court and one of the impacts of Trump in general has been that Democrats are now reliable voters and Republicans are a little more iffy um, in terms of whether or not they turn out. So one of my reactions to Tuesday night was Donald Trump is really strong because he gets his voters out to the polls. That's what we saw in 2016. That's what we saw in 2020. Um, and so um, I sort of looked at the results and thought Donald Trump could, is likely to be the strongest candidate that the Republicans could nominate. On the other hand, what I saw Wednesday night was, you know, Nikki Haley has shown real appeal to sort of independent voters. She has positions that I think are very appealing to the center of America. And so on paper, you'd think she might be a stronger candidate. On the other hand, will she get the turnout that Trump can get? I don't know. I think that the most important thing I'm looking at is who's going to finish second in Iowa, in the Iowa caucuses on January 15th. I call it Iowa silver, um, because whoever finishes second, especially if it's Nikki Haley defeating um, for second uh, Ron DeSantis, I see her as being able to mount a significant effort in the later primaries and up, uh, you know through Super Tuesday and making it more of a contest than it looks like right now. And so uh, I think that we should keep our eyes open for what's going to happen. I'm curious to see what will play out, obviously, as we get closer. And I agree with you. I think her ground game in Iowa, and I talk to people uh, who are very familiar with her campaign, they feel fairly confident. Uh, the same can be said, by the way, for Governor DeSantis. I mean, people do feel like just let him get to Iowa and prove that he is the alternative to Donald Trump. And yet, from a debate performance, uh, she seems to garner headlines. I think the same can be said for Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, but uh, there are those who say slow and steady wins the race here, Kevin, at least for the silver medal. Uh, barring some, you know, strange lightning, it's going to be Donald Trump uh, one way or the other leading the banner for the GOP for good or for ill. If you put a gun to my head, I would say that you're right. <laughs> and and if, but if but if you're but if the gun is not directly pointed at my head, I would say we really need to wait and see what's happening, and we shouldn't um, um, rush to judgment here. Uh, but um, I think that yes, Donald Trump is incredibly strong in the party um, and uh, shows no signs of any kind of weakness. And all the legal troubles that have been thrown at him or that he's uh, dealing with have not seemed to have made a dent. If anything, they dro drove up the enthusiasm of his supporters. Last one, and this is total speculation, but I thought it was an interesting point made by uh, a former colleague, and, and it, it walks out uh, this way. What happens if Joe Biden wins the nomination, 
And after the convention, he says, on the advice of my doctor or advice of counsel, I can't receive this nomination. And it goes to the DNC. Is this a Gavin Newsom shocker or are we, or is it impossible to to elevate a Gavin Newsom over a Kamala Harris or does a Michelle Obama come in do you think about this sort of thing or am I just the one guy who's already thinking about the what ifs because anytime people say to me ah oh, it's a done deal i just don't i just don't know i think it i think something crazy could happen what about you joe biden is 80 years old yes and um, and so medically, the likelihood of something possibly happening is greater than it is for someone like you or me, um, given our ages. And so it all those things are possible. Um, my own sense is uh, that that Joe Biden is running and that as so long as he's running, he's going to get his party's nomination. And yes, there are many signs in polling and the rest that he's not the strongest possible candidate that the Democrats could offer. On the other hand, I think um, read the serenity prayer or say the serenity prayer. Um, there's stuff you can control and you should just <laughs> and there's stuff you can't and you should just accept the stuff you can't control. And and um, right now, I think he's the nominee. Do I think he's the if you're going to ask me who's going to win in November? I'd say don't look at the polls. Don't bring people like me on to talk about what's going to happen in November. You should bring in some foreign policy experts and some economic experts, because what's going to affect people's view of Joe Biden is going to be what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in Taiwan and China, and most importantly, what's going on in the U.S. economy. And and as inflation subsided to the point where people start thinking, you know, the economy is going just fine and yes, he's old, but things are just fine. I mean, that's the question. Um, and I think it's it's a question that's better answered by people who know what's going to happen in the world rather than political people who are looking at polls today. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Arnon. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much for having me, Kevin. That'll do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Be sure to join us all next week as we keep an eye on Wall Street as the Fed announces the latest jobs numbers and housing starts. Until then, we thank you for listening. I'm Kevin Cork from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.